welcome to episode two of my podcast. This week, um, I am interviewing Amy Kurkani, the host of the One Broken Mom podcast. We talk about childhood trauma and how it can affect you, toxic, relation, toxic relationships. So please watch it, like it and share it. And please subscribe to the channel. We need to get the subscribers so we can create more videos. I mean, thank you for joining me on my second edition of my podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you for taking time out on this Saturday where most people wouldn't take time out in joining me. So thank you very much. Um, obviously, we touched base via Facebook and via a, a certain group. And your story was very touching to me in, in, in how you were very open in your experience through life, what you've experienced. So for the viewer and listener, if you could just share your story with me and just kind of give a bit of an insight about yourselves, please. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I don't think my story really is all that unusual. Um, I think what's uh, interesting about it is that it's probably much more common than most people realize. And that is, you know, I grew up uh, going to college and I had um, uh, wanted to, you know, pursue success in any way that I possibly could intellectually uh, get a good job, get married and all those good things. Um, I was apprehensive as a young woman about becoming a mother without really knowing what that was. But then my mind was changed later on in my life and I became a parent of two kids. I, however, through the course of um, the economic crash of around 2009 in the United States, ended up in a very stressful situation that put a lot of pressure and burden on my family, on work, and particularly on myself. And what I didn't realize at the time is that it was beginning to touch on some um, wounds and parts of me that I just could never, um, never put a finger on that were troubling for me. And my husband and I at the time decided that we were going to get divorced. And because I was struggling so much with, with also the pieces of our relationship that were around motherhood, it was decided that he would become the custodial parent. I ended up spending seven years thinking that I was pursuing freedom and enlightenment and, you know, um, you know, continuing to pursue success in business and stuff. But what I didn't realize at that time was that I was actually still completely unraveling emotionally. And I found myself seven years later almost in the exact same situation that I was in before. I was losing my business. I was losing a relationship and I was in financial straits all over again. And it was at the second time of going through that process. I was like, okay, now you need to kind of take a time out here and figure out what's actually going on. I really dug in at that point in time and began to see uh, very slowly that um, there may be something going on in terms of not that the world is just a bad place and I make bad decisions, but maybe there's something internal to me. And it happened in about, I would say, it's almost been a year now that I finally, through this exploration and self-help, came upon a, not a notion, it's something that a lot of people have talked about in psychology quite a bit, but I began to respect the the effects of childhood trauma. And I had been living in a camp that, like I said, I don't think it's unusual for most people, which is we don't regard some of the things that experiences we had as children as really being traumatic. We think of trauma as beatings and, and starving and sexual abuse and things like that. But what scientists and researchers have discovered in the last 20, maybe 30 years is that trauma is anything that happens to us that puts us in a state of a defense mode. And when children are subjected to that through the course of their brain development as a child, it does affect how our brain actually forms and how we end up responding later on as an adult. 
And when I had made that realization that I couldn't forget about things that had happened to me growing up as a, as a child. They were the reason why I kept cycling and self-sabotaging and why I had this conflicted relationship with motherhood, you know, wanting to be a mom, but feeling awkward and, and impersonal with it. And then that just set me on a path of realizing that if, if me as a, a fairly intelligent woman, I've got a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, um, I feel smart, <laughs> but if I couldn't, see that in myself and couldn't and didn't realize that, then I know that I'm not alone in, in understanding just what exactly childhood trauma really is and how much it actually interferes with our abilities in so many ways, whether they're how we balance our checkbook regularly to um, anger management to everything that a lot of adults these days are really afflicted by. And so that's my, you know, kind of a brief story or a brief um, description of, you know, my progress to where I am today. It's very interesting you say that because a lot of people suffer from not direct trauma in a sense of um, sexual abuse, uh, physical abuse and some people suffer in different ways and they don't realise until they get to a certain stage in their lives where they actually start backtracking in their heads and start putting the jigsaw pieces together and it makes sense. So how do you feel the relationship between you and your family affected you um, uh, overall? Um, well, you know, everybody has different uh, ways they relate to what happened in their family. For me, you know, one thing was uh, it, it never occurred to me. It, I never thought it to be completely unusual. But if you explain this to other people, they'd find it unusual was that I've lived half of my life way up and I live outside the Seattle area. And I'm originally from Kansas. I moved out here 23, 24 years ago. And if you totaled the days that I've spent with my family or talked to them even on the phone since I moved out here, it's probably less than 60 total days out of 23 years. And to me, that was my life. But most people don't um, don't spend that much time away from them. And so when I reflected back of, well, what was going on there? You know, I think I can't speak for the choices that my parents made, but I can empathize with the fact that they didn't feel like they had tools to be parents. And it is an admission that my mother even makes today that, you know, she never really wanted to have kids and never felt like she should have had kids. And the problem was, was that ultimately that mindset was reflected in how I was parented and my brothers. I am um, a very sensitive person. Um, and, you know, sensitivity is not one of those things that's actually bad, but it means that emotionally uh, more responsive to absent or, you know, um, not having enough, you know, of things going on. So for me, it was a lot of um, not feeling like as I grew up that, um, and uh, this is the complaint we hear from our kids today, which is I feel like no one really understood me. And so when I was, you know, as a child, we learn our cues and our emotional development from our parents and our, the adults in our lives. And if we aren't getting the proper feedback, then we're making it up in our head as we go. And a lot of that was, um, you know, I was asked as the oldest child to take care of all my younger brothers because my mother was wanting to spend more of her youth going out and doing things. And so once I became a capable child and carers are something that I know that they talk about over in Europe and in England quite a bit too, of when children are put in caretaking positions. And so that was a piece of being a highly capable young woman that I was asked to just start picking up the slack. And that's too much to do to a child. Um, and then I think the other pieces of it was I was a very creative young woman and the creativity was misunderstood 
and um, almost made fun of. And, you know, there was teasing involved. And I just, like I said, when I turned 18 years old and I could move on, I just, I got out because I felt like I was, I've equated it to feeling like I was placed in a box. Like who I was, wasn't allowed to really ever come out and be, you know, myself. I had to fit into the normative of what my family needed me to do, which was to step up and act like an adult before I was really ready to do that as a kid. That's a very, if you ever, in, in, in South Asia, it is very common for the eldest child at the age of 10, 11, 12 to start looking after their younger siblings whilst the parents are going out or it's just a cultural thing in South Asia. And when that person gets older, especially in the late 20s, you see the effect it has on them. Some of them miss out on their younger kind of early teenage because they're actually parenting and they're, they're a child themselves and some are misunderstood some have anger and some just kind of actually start hating their parents because of that because whilst their friends were outside playing in the park they were at home looking after their younger brother changing nappies and the parents were outside socializing what what are the trauma signs that somebody should look for in your opinion that they would know how would somebody know that they've suffered from a trauma without what what should they be looking for or i know everybody is different but just in a general kind of view if somebody maybe was gone through an experience like yourself what could they look for inside them think maybe i have i have suffering from something Mm -hmm. well you know we talk a lot and i know your show addresses this as well with anxiety and depression and our our responses if they feel like they're just out of left field, you know, and that's a, that's a saying in the U S a baseball term. But if, you know, if, if you are, um, affected by something, if somebody says something to you and your response is immediate, but yet doesn't seem to come from a place you truly understand, like your adrenaline starts to race or you get really angry at something and you feel like maybe you've overreacted to it. That's usually a sign that you've been, there's a wound in there that is somehow, you know, an automatic that your brain is responding to. And that would be something that would be typically trauma based. Um, Also, if you have a hard time, you know, a lot of people have been told to kind of keep their feelings to themselves and not be able to open up. And if communicating and feeling like you are being understood well or being seen or um, and having some of the depression and not being able to see that, I mean, that's that's likely because you had been told or lived in a family where, you know, people just weren't going to communicate with you. And so you had to, you know, pin up a lot of those feelings. Um, but your triggers are usually going to be a physical response. Like that's going to be your, your first piece of a signal that, you know, your heart races, um, or the anxiety settles in and you aren't really always sure why you feel that way. Um, and that's because you do have to, like you said, travel back through time a bit to get to what were those moments that were causing you to feel that for me, I had a, an abandonment moment that happened with me between my mother and I when I was six years old. And then shortly after my parents had gotten divorced, I was sent away to go live with other family members. And so a part of what I didn't understand as a child was that I kept having recurring nightmares of my mother dying over and over again. And as we went through therapy, the therapeutic process as an adult, you know, my, my therapist had identified that that was a sure sign of PTSD, an untreated case of PTSD that my little body was dealing with from six until about 12 years old. And then it kept continuing that feelings of abandonment and rejection were always going to go back to that initial wound. And so you're breaking up with somebody 
company and you're feeling really devastated by it or that you need to work really hard to make something happen, that's a little kid begging for their parents' attention. And so sometimes in relationships, that can be one way of, do you feel like you're putting in all the effort in the relationship and yet you're always with somebody that's never returning it back to you? That's probably a signal of your types of family, you know, family relationships you had. And that was a role you had to play, which was to prove yourself to parents or a caregiver in order to get them to respond favorably back to you. Is that helpful? Yeah, yeah, very. That's very interesting. That and 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 I fully agree with what you're saying. And uh, you have to sometimes look at what you're going through, kind of try piecing it together, and from there look at the symptoms. So, if somebody has gone through trauma and PTSD, I think you said, and um, what should they do then if they recognise that this is an issue? What can they do then to kind of go on that step to or that road to recovery? Um, you know, I'm an advocate. I know there's a lot of people that, um, and, and people take their own path that feels really good to them. And I know some people, even myself, will start down self-help. They'll start to put words and definitions. So if they're listening to this and they go, oh, maybe I have PTSD, do some research and figure out if some of that language fits you, if those words identify, you know, with what you're feeling and stuff. But at the end of the day, when you go back to uh, to heal childhood trauma and you are really going in and rewiring the brain that was formed, and, and this isn't woo-woo psychology, this is actually neuroscience. This is real science behind all of this. You, I, I'm a 100% believer that you're going to have to have a therapist help you through with that. Um, you can get far enough, maybe depending on the amount of wounding and trauma that you've actually got. But at the end of the day, if you're really suffering, and for me, I felt like I looked like I was a high functioning adult because I, I seemed to have success. And like I said, you know, generally happy, no, no terrible drug addictions or anything like that. But I kept failing over and over again and sabotaging myself. And I knew the only way out of that was to go through therapy. It took me a while to get to that place. But then being a mother with two children, I also knew that I had to do a much more rigorous approach because I was in danger of passing down to my children all of the deficiencies that I had. And that was really the key. And so if you're in that situation where you're parenting right now and you feel like you don't have all of the tools um, or you didn't get quite the development you needed, then I definitely recommend that you go and find yourself a therapist who is a specialist in childhood trauma. And not all of them are. And I 100% agree with that. I think once you've suffered from any form of trauma and then you look at your children, you don't want them to go through what you went through. So it's very important that one, you recognize it. And once you've recognized it, I think that's a big step in itself that recognize that I have a problem and then each step, you're on the road to recovery. It might take a bit of time, but you're on that road to recovery as well. So did therapy help you a lot? Was that the kind of key change in your mindset? How did you kind of get on that? Was, was it therapy was the key driver? Um, the key driver was first respecting the effect of childhood trauma. And for me, I'm a scientific person. And so once I saw the research backed by neuroscience, not theory developed by, you know, leading psychologists, but, you know, researchers that were taking looks at MRIs and CAT scans and software crunching data and all that stuff. Then I knew for myself, like this was, um, that this was a real thing that had to be addressed. And then, yes, I went into therapy and started to do it. I still see a therapist because it's a long process. Childhood trauma takes a long time to develop and your neuroplasticity, which is the ability for your brain to change itself declines with age, unfortunately. Um, and so when you get into your forties, which is what I am right now, 
not going to happen overnight and it requires a lot of patience. And a therapist is really key because they are an, a witness that is able to guide you and um, hold your space because healing is one of the hardest emotional things that we'll have to go through. But the breakthrough definitely was finally, finally giving into therapy. And I think that's it. Sometimes people go to therapy and they may not even be ready for it. They still deny. But if you've got a good therapist that will help pull that out for you, I think it'll be really critical, but I know that I went in, like I jumped in feet first and was like ready for all of it. And I knew it was going to be hard and it still is hard, but it's been a tremendous, like my life has changed. It'll never be the same again. And my, even my relationships with my kids and then knowing what I need to do for them has changed dramatically of being able to cure and work on any of the wounding they already got as a result of, you know, what has happened between the divorce and the, you know, me not being around as much. And, um, but I would say it's, I mean, I'm, like so I said, I'm a huge advocate for it. Like, you know, I don't want people to be afraid of it. I don't want them to think that it means that they're defective or they're broken. Uh, it's one of the most underutilized options and tools we have to us with really getting in and, and being able to, again, rewire our brain and get those neural pathways trained to do and respond in a totally different way. And it's like, I, I, again, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think therapy is very important. It's like, if you look at it from another point of view, if you have a broken leg, you will not be able to fix that leg just by leaving it uh, there. You're going to have to go and see a doctor and who's going to tell you what to do to how to repair that. And your emotional and your psychological side, you need to see a therapist that can put you on the road to recovery. But from my point of view, one thing I would say to the viewer and the listener is, you'll probably come out, it will be a tough journey, but you will come out on the other end a lot better person. You'll understand people a lot better. Your relationships will get a lot, a lot better. And as a human being, you will improve a lot more. Which kind of brings me on to my next question. One of the things you mentioned to me was relationships. What effect does an abusive relationship have on a, on on people, in your opinion? Um, well, I know that depending on what kind of traumas that you can go through, typically, you know, one of the effects is if you've suffered from emotional neglect or abandonment, you'll find that children grow into adults with love addiction which means they are looking for any relationship to fill in because they never had the unconditional love of a parent to help kind of fill in that emotional center, that, that stability, that attachment. And so when you get into that and you're vulnerable to that, and, and as, as this was the case with me, is I found myself in codependent relationships where I, my posturing was, I'm going to do whatever it takes for you to love me. Well, you end up attracting to you people that are looking for somebody to give them that in return. And it becomes a very imbalanced relationship and it can become physically abusive and it can become emotionally abusive. And that is going to be something that you'll see with people, uh, you know, that have, again, the, the part of the trauma that had to do with emotional neglect or actual physical abandonment as they are just wayward souls searching for basically a parental figure. And that's not a healthy relationship to have as an adult. And those relationships are going to be always off balance and not always sustainable. They're not going to last, you know, very long. You're going to end up, like I said, I essentially been married twice. My last relationship was as close to as a marriage as you're going to get without a certificate. So that's three times. That's, that's not what I ever wanted for my life, you know? And I always envied people that got married and stayed married for 20 years, you know? Um, but it was like, I was a love addicted person. Like that was me searching for somebody that I could really work hard to prove that I had something to give them. And I, you know, the people that I found were the people that were the opposite of all that. It's like, well, I don't want that anymore. 
So, in, in the UK, we have a big problem at the moment with abusive relationships. Um, a lot of women are in abusive relationships. I'm not sure what that figure is in the states. If somebody is in an abusive is in an abusive relationship, male or female, what advice would you give to them? Oh gosh, that's really hard to do because I have been that woman where. Um, you know better. And that's the prefrontal cortex of the brain saying, you know, you know better, you need to be out of this. But when you don't identify yet with the wound um, that's down in here in the, you know, in the uh, part of the primitive part of your brain, that's your emotional center. It's hard to move yourself to make the change that you need to because you're still responding to the trauma. And, and so when somebody's in there, and I've had this conversation with some therapists that I talked to on my show, and I've said, how do I get, so I, what could somebody have said to me to get me out of it? Because I had people telling me, you know, you should leave. You should get out of this relationship. And you validate it all you want. And even though you're sitting there struggling, like, I know it's bad, but I can get out of it. That's that codependency that gets into it. And it's, I wish I had great advice because I, you know, I didn't even know what to get into it. What got me out of my relationship was my kids needed their mom back and I knew my partner was going to say no. And I basically used that as an excuse to get out of it. And so sometimes it's a matter of, can you make up an excuse that allows you to validate your exit strategy? You know, your plan to be able to get out of there. I mean, do whatever it takes for you to, to, you know, feel like you can follow through. But, um, it's better, I think as the person on the outside, if you witness somebody that's in an abusive relationship, um, one of the therapists that I talked to her advice was respond with shock, show them, you know, through this emotional, this empathetic response to them that what they're describing to you is not okay. And that it's not acceptable. If that person who's in that abusive relationship sees that over and over again, it may start to help them reform their own empathetic response to themselves and, and realize maybe that they are actually in a truly bad situation, but it's tough when you're in the, when you're in that abusive role to depart from what you know you should be doing with those deep, deep pieces of your wounds. And I had wanted to go to therapy while I was in the midst of my relationships and wasn't quite ready for it yet. And, um, but if I had started going into therapy cause I felt like something was wrong, I think that would have pulled me out of my relationship faster than it actually did. And I think um, if people are fearful of relieving relationships as well. If they've got children, they don't. The, the, the psychological effect that that relationships had on them, or that partner is having on them, people lose a lot of self confidence as well, and they think, oh, it can't get any better than this, so I'd rather stay in this relationship. So I think that is very important. That, like you said, somebody should take a step back. But it's easy for me to say that, you know, because I've never been in an abusive relationship, but. Anybody that is in an abusive relationship is, you know, um, we take some advice, speak to people, and then see what's best for you. Yeah, it's it's a trap. I mean, it's a trap. Um, I described it as being caught in a web, and you know, sometimes depending on the nature of the relationship, the more you fight, the tighter it gets, and and it it can be it's a hard hard step to take to get out of it, and and then it's scary and unsettling once you're out of it, and that's normal. So anybody that's listening to this. Leaving it doesn't mean that you're 100% okay the moment you walk out the door. It will take you time. You will doubt yourself and second guess yourself. You'll think that you could go back, that you could change them. And that's the biggest mistake that somebody makes in a um, in an abusive relationship is they feel like if they just work a little harder, they'll get that other person, their abuser, to turn the corner and that finally they'll change. And that is never going to happen. <laughs> 
Um, and it, it's hard to come to that conclusion. And even when, like I said, even being out of the relationship, you, it's like detoxing because you've got chemicals in your body, just as drugs and alcohol do to you. And some people have to go through a physical detox. I felt like I was still physically detoxing as well from, you know, the last experience that I had, that it took me months. And that's where therapy kind of kept, you know, pushing me and guiding me through it and saying, you can do it. Um, so it's not easy. And it's not like it's just as simple as walking out the door, but it's okay. And that's part of it. And that you will, you will come out on the other end of it eventually. Um, and you'll be better for it if you can get out and one of the things of uh, the people that i have spoke to have said that they get scared that if it's a male or female and they're going to go into another relationship with a male or female they think every the others are all the same and they get scared of trust and, and they lose that trust element i can't trust somebody again no i can't be with somebody again but like you said it's, it's a long road to recovery um and once you're on the road you know everything does get better and you will come out on the other side which is the most important thing one of the things i found very interesting of what we when we had the original conversation was about when you mentioned about your arthritis that you suffered mm -hmm. could we get a bit of an insight into that and how that what effect that had on you Yes. So I'm actually, I was diagnosed four years ago with rheumatoid arthritis, which is different than osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis is the arthritis, you know, people get from just aging, joints get worn out. But rheumatoid arthritis is actually an autoimmune disorder and it affects less than one tenth of a percent of the population worldwide. And interestingly enough of that number, two thirds of the people diagnosed are actually women. And most of them start showing the symptoms in their 30s and 40s. So it's a very unusual disease that um, crops up. And one of the pieces, and, and in fact, I just spoke with a doctor yesterday who has been compiling trauma studies, childhood trauma studies and adverse, um, you know, relationships between adverse childhood experiences and autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis. And they don't know what causes it, but there's enough evidence and studies that actually correlate adverse childhood and trauma, and that an autoimmune disorder is basically a switch in the brain, having the, the brain react as if it's in some sort of stress mode. And so I ended up developing rheumatoid arthritis in between the period of divorcing the kid's dad, losing a business, getting into the next toxic relationship. And then it grew and, and ballooned in this last relationship that I was in that fell apart. And, um, and all of my stresses that caused the flare-ups, which caused all the, the pain in my joints to really hurt very badly, were all stress-related. So one of the things that I had noticed was that if something negative was going on in my life, how I responded to it physically also then determined whether or not I would end up with a flare up in there. And so therapy has been another piece of that in terms of learning how to manage those responses. I've actually been able to also control and I, I still have to take medication. I wish there was a cure. Um, but the link between the stress, the trauma for me, you know, we talked about it kindling, like it was building up and blooming. And finally the body just rejected. There was a fantastic uh, researcher and psychotherapist, Alice Miller, and she wrote a very provocative book many years ago called The Body Never Lies. And she talks a lot about this, where when we're denied our ability to respond the way we need to, the body holds all that in its cells. And, you know, RA is one of those disorders that many people believe actually is the manifestation of, you know, and why it affects women and in their 30s and 40s. And, you know, is such a, a such a specific thing that I just think that some women have had to hold in so much that the body just kind of like pulls it out and it becomes this disorder. Again, um, 
that is very interesting how that arthritis is linked to kind of the trauma side of things and, and how it affects your body but one thing you've said then I totally agree that your body never lies your body will always tell you and you have to listen to your body that if you're tired if you're suffering if you're anxious if you're having a panic attack there's a reason why your body is doing that either it's out of balance or something is playing um, subconsciously on your mind and then you have to take the steps in kind of going on that road to recovery but one thing I'll come on to later in this interview is the internet and how the internet is helping people in a positive way. With There's so much good information out there, whereas years ago you would have had to go into a library, found, find a book, read through chapter upon chapter. It took you weeks to get the answer you're looking for. You know, one thing that I did want to touch upon yourself was, let's say somebody is suffering from trauma, but the parent of that child or teenager or person or their partner wants to help them so they want to help them recover from the trauma what can that parent or partner do to help the person that's suffering from trauma um that's a that's a touchy one because sometimes it's hard for our loved ones to be impartial and unbiased about what it is that we need to do right and so again i'm an advocate for the fact that really your partner in your healing and recovery should be a professional therapist who's trained in understanding, you know, cognitive behavior. They understand childhood trauma because what can happen when somebody close to you, and this is what's happened to me, is if, um, for example, your parent is the cause and the source of your, of your trauma, which is what I'm saying is like, for most of us, that's actually the case. Depending on where they are emotionally, they can become defensive and they can actually interfere with the ability to be able to heal. And I know this is a hard thing and this is one of the things that I advocate because I think one of the stigmas for people to actually move forward with their healing is they have to get over the fact that they can't worry about whether or not they hurt their parents' feelings. We're not here attacking parents, you know, by saying that we've got some things to, to heal from. And so I think the best thing a parent can do is if they recognize that there's been some shortcomings, you know, what I've done with my own kids, for example, is I can apologize to them, but I don't want the apology to be as if they, they have to forgive me because I need for them at any point in time to recognize when something comes up that if it's related to something that happened, that I'm not going to get defensive with them and I'm not going to challenge them and I'm not going to prevent them or tell them to stop worrying about it. And I think that that's what loved ones tend to do is they, you know, they tend to diminish it too much or say they're there, don't worry about it, it'll all be okay. Healing from trauma is a, is a raw painful experience. And sometimes it's not okay. Sometimes it hurts and it wounds in order for you to really be able to identify what it is. And so being, um, being a loving presence, you know, um, and, and encouraging them through this whole process and encouraging them not to give up on the process, because there are times where you're just like, I can't do this anymore. It's easy. Your brain wants you to go back to what's easy. That's why it's why you're wired to do the things that you do. It goes to default mode. And it can be easy while you're going through this healing process to just say, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before. It's easier to find, you know, and date the same people that I'm doing because I know how to work with them, you know, and that kind of thing. And so, um, but you know, I think that it's hard and we like to rely on our friends to be our therapists, but they're just, our friends and our family just, they really aren't. You need to have somebody that's independent of that. And so what they can do is just encourage you to keep moving down that path with that, with that person. Alice Miller called him an enlightened witness, um, an, an empathetic witness. Those are kinds of the other terms that you hear for what the therapist really does in that process. Again, it, it, where in, in the South Asian culture, 
um, the, the amount of stress parents put on their children is, is unbelievable. You'll see, um, if you look at stuff online where children in India, even before they've hit 12, they're already being drilled into their heads. You're going to be a solicitor, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be this. And as soon as you become a solicitor or a doctor, you need to get married, you need to get married. And as soon as you're married, why haven't you had any kids? And why? And that's 30, 40 years, 30 years gone of their life. And, and then they become like that. And then you see when, when that child from India or Pakistan or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh then goes to the, West, or to the West and then they see similar people of their age and they're having a good time. They're not married yet. Somebody's happy being a, a bin man, a dustbin man, as you call them. Or somebody's happy being a chef or somebody's happy being be a carpenter. And they think, oh, I, I would like to do that. But then they can't have that conversation with their parents because the parents are playing an emotional game with them or you, or I know what's best for you. And maybe it is, well, I, I agree with you as well that maybe you need to then speak to somebody outside of your circle who can give you a different opinion and a different insight into your kind of life and where it's going. But I think me being a parent and yourself as well, it's very important you try to understand your children, let them be free and let them do what they want to do. And discover the discover what they are good at, rather than saying, um, "X, you need to do X, Y, Z." And thirdly, let them just discover themselves. It's very important because if you don't, in the long run, what we're seeing now is people will suffer, and then you don't want to be held responsible for them turning out the way they did. Absolutely, absolutely. And in the United States, you know, we have rising teen suicide, and it. And in the U.S., um, white men in their middle ages is one of the sharpest inclines in suicide rates, um, you know, in their 30s, you know, their 40s and 50s in there. And it's it's it is, I, I believe, you know, goes back to we have been passing down generation to generation this, you know, ideas. And, you know, and like you said, I agree with you, like your kids are going to tell them who they are. You know, they're not you. <laughs> they may have come from you genetically, but they're not you. They are their own amazing brain developing there. And what it is that they want to be, you know, you just got to have to love them and, and love them regardless of all those things and not lay any expectations on them. And they will be they'll they'll flourish that way. So and all you can do as a parent is raise them up until the age of 16, 18 and then let them be. And whatever they want to do, they've got to make their own decisions and learn from them. You can't drip feed them until 25, 26 and keep telling them this is right, this is wrong, this is what you need to do. When you get a grow older, you need to be a doctor, you need to be a solicitor. This is how it's wrong in my opinion. It's totally wrong. You've got to let the child discover themselves. And I think that's the reason we're having a big increase in mental health in a younger the younger kind of population um, which kind of brings me on to my next question is what role do you see social media playing in the modern day and how affecting people or from a mental health point of view um, an example is people looking at Instagram comparing their lives to somebody else's life and saying oh they've got XYZ I don't have that I want that what, what, what what's your opinion on the whole kind of social media craze and what the effect it has on people well, I think social media is more of a symptom than a cause. I think when you see people doing the comparisons out there, it's they are they are identifying that they are not being seen themselves and so they're broadcasting themselves out there so they can be witnessed by other people. So I I, I look at it as 
you know, we didn't have that available to us when we were younger, but I don't think that we would have cho- done anything differently, you know, with it. I think that if you have a, um, a life as a child, as a teenager, and even as an adult where you feel like no one really gets you, they've, they've either forced their opinions or their drive onto you on what you should be doing, or they're demanding that you are doing what they need them to do, then you have that innate feeling of like, well, I need somebody to see me, who I am, my humanity out there. And so I'm going to put a picture of myself out there. I'm going to show everybody what I'm doing. It, it spirals into the comparison, but I think that it is definitely showing us that we have a lot of people that have grown up really not having felt like anybody ever really understood them. And the other part of social media is, is that Parents are affected by it as much as their kids are. They just don't want to admit it. And so when you are also distracted by social media and you're paying more attention to what's going on there than to the reality of your own life, you're detaching as well. And so I do take, um, you know, when I see parents on Facebook posting about how social media is ruining their kid's life, I'm just like going, well, what are you doing right now? Like you're doing the same thing with it. And so I think it's hypocritical and we're all really good at being hypocritical. That's usually, you know, um, but I don't I don't believe that the social media is the cause of it. I still go back to the fact that it's intergenerational parenting. It just became a way we're seeing it now in a way we never really noticed it before. We didn't notice children were being overlooked. We didn't notice that they were being maybe neglected at home. But when we can look at Snapchat and Instagram and see a whole lot of it out there, it should show us the magnitude of how many people have not been feeling nourished enough in their life that they're looking outwards to be able to get that attention from the rest of the world. And one thing that the listener or the viewer needs to understand is not everything you read online is true. Not every picture you see is true. So if you see a family out in Disney World having the best time of their lives, it doesn't mean they're happy. What makes you happy is <coughs> go and do what, what, what makes you happy. Don't look at Don't start getting in this rat race and one of the things I really believe in is too many people in a rat race is they're trying to either business-wise or life-wise and I think it's ruining a lot of people. Too many people are, like I said, comparing lives, looking at lives, trying to make money, they don't spend enough time with their family and before you know it, your life's gone and that uh-huh. is, 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 is the most important thing. One last thing before I let you go is what would you say to people that fear who have just got fear of, or anxious or just generally fearful of life or fearful of the next day, how can they start to change their mindset and move into the right direction? It might be fear of family, might be fear of losing their business, which you've been in there. What? Let's just take somebody who might lose, who's in a t- difficulty with their business and are struggling What and they're fearful. What advice would you give to somebody like that? Wow, um, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I... Mindset point of view. From a mind, right. from a mindset point of view, you know the the fear is usually not based in anything that's actually going to hurt you. I mean, I, I think that's the reality of it is is that we fear a lot of things that really don't have any power to kill us, you know, or actually hurt us. It is something that has been told to us. It's a story that's been woven into our brain and our mindset at such a young age that um, if you can realize that, you know you, anything can be changed. And that's, I think that's a a beautiful piece too, is that, you know, even if it doesn't go the way that you thought it was going to go, 
you know, if you wake up in the morning and you're still breathing, then it's okay. Like you can just adapt and you can, you know, weave. And I, I, I'm a dodge and weaver. I'm a ninja, you know, I mean, that's how I basically have risen and fallen so many times is because I have crashed to the ground and I've been able to get right back up and go again. And, um, which can make it, you know, where it's like, oh, it's fine. I crashed again. I'll just build myself back up again. I just got tired of doing that. But I think for people that go out and they have a real genuine fear, you know, it's kind of like if you're going to walk across a bridge, grab a handrail, find a handrail in your life, find something that's going to give you some stability, whether it's a friend, um, maybe it's a hobby that gives you confidence and allows you to kind of re-energize uh, the good parts of you that make and, and grow that piece of you so that's stronger and it can go beyond the fear. And then the other piece is you know, try, you don't have to do all of it at one time. So if there's just this one thing, which is starting a business, or maybe it's leaving a relationship or whatever it is, do little pieces of it, you know, move forward incrementally as, you know, as much as possible, tiptoe across that bridge with your hand on the guardrail, don't go sprinting across it, um, or anything like that. And that can kind of get you moving. Once you get moving, and you realize every step that you take that it didn't hurt, that you're fine, you're coming out okay. Um, you start to gain confidence and strength, and then it realizes that the fear is unfounded or it's not as bad as you thought it was going to be. Um, but it, it, it does depend on, like I said, you know, and I know, you know, this, you know, our extent of what has, um, the story that's been put in our brain, it, it varies for other people. And some people are truly terrified. And I have just great sympathy and empathy for people that have been left with, you know, feeling like there's just nothing but hopelessness out there. And we know that there's something that's out there that you can do, but, Sometimes you have to act despite being fearful. You have to just do it. You don't not do something because you're afraid. And so it means taking a small step if you can every time that you go forward. And if you have to find something to grab onto to get you through it, um, you know, find a friend, find somebody that can partner with you through this, mo you know, movement. Um, you don't have to do everything by yourself. You know, that's not the key there. And so that would be my advice. And one thing I'll add to that is whatever you fear never usually happens. You know, you always fear something so far. If you look at your whole life, you'll probably from school, college, university, whatever you feared never really happened. And I always believe as long as you wake up the next day and you're breathing and your family's okay, that's all that matters. Yeah. Amy, th Amy, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find out about you? Where can they read about you? Um, so I have a blog and a website called uh, mequeercony.com. And then I actually do a podcast called One Broken Mom. And my podcast is about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. And so I tackle these topics that we talked about with childhood trauma through a lot of different, you know, different ways. I interview therapists and writers, authors, researchers, and we talk about all the different aspects. And so for anybody that wants to listen and hear if some pieces of it sound familiar to them, then the show would be something I would recommend. And um, it's a very easygoing show. Um, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I'm not an expert. I'm just the person. I'm like the average person out there who just kind of had this aha moment. And so what I do is I bring on people to teach me with the hopes that we can teach everybody else. And my, you know, my line is, is that so that we can all get better together. And so that's where you can find me. One Broken Mom is on Apple, Stitcher, Google, you know, all the podcast platforms that are out there. I will leave the links below in the, in the description. Thank you so much. Only if there was more people like yourself that would discuss this more openly so more people could benefit from this. Um, I'm sure we'll be doing some more stuff in the future together, but thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. So and thank you for what you're doing with this as well. That's very great.